This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. You know, when you think of burnout, um, you know, sometimes you think of all these people that, that uh, aren't motivated. They don't have a purpose in life. They... But when you listen to uh, Julia's numbers about the fact that burnout comes to the people that really tend to be most engaged, um, and then they they don't they don't take time for themselves, and I think a lot of us are we're so driven, we so live in this world where we need to get the right grades, we need to everything's pressure, and we want to be the best and. And we, we even feel compelled to be the best because, you know, God would want it that way. He'd want us to be our best self. But God doesn't want you to be burnt out. He doesn't want you to do more than you can do, does he? Is that how this works? Is No, no, you got to No, sorry. Actually, he wants you just to be just a big mushy ball of nothing. That's how God works. Um, God wants you to be in tune and in a connection with him. So to me, the, what uh, what maybe we need to figure out with each of our lives is how do we do some of this? For example, how do I stay uh, focused and connected to my purpose in life while simultaneously um, growing and, and knowing who I am and um, stretching myself and, and pushing myself harder to do more and to be more? How do I do all of that and not get burnt out. It uh, it's I, I guess the key to some of this is going to be um, I guess at some point in our lives, knowing what matters to us, knowing what our yeses are, knowing what we need to do, what we need to work on, what we need to be. Um, so it's going to take a little bit of work. Uh, interesting. Some research on happiness shows that 48% of Americans consider themselves happy, right? And um, which doesn't seem that, I mean, I guess that's high, but 33% of Americans say they're very happy with their jobs. By the way, the happiest careers happen to be clergy, firefighters, and reservation agents, which to me is what? But when you look at clergy and firefighters and, I guess, reservation agents, they're outwardly focused. They're serving others. They're helping people uh, take care of and, and do things. They're, they're, they're outwardly focused. They probably also um, – I know, for example, with firefighters, they spend only about 1% or 2% of their time actually fighting a fire. The other 98% of their time, they are probably preparing, working, exercising, anticipating – rejuvenating, getting healthy, you know, drilling, practicing, doing things like that. So I think each and every one of us could probably find a way to take better care of our lives if we maybe thought a little bit more like a clergy member who's always looking to the bigger picture of God or a firefighter who's always trying to prepare so that they can handle the fire. Some of us, though, don't have time to prepare for the fires because we're too busy fighting fires. And um, if you keep fighting the fires and never prepare for the fires, then eventually you'd eventually have, I'm betting, a lot of fires to handle, right? Maybe 60% of your time would actually be in firefighting instead of fire prevention. So look at your own balance in your own life. What percentage of your day is actually spent 
in true recreation, where you actually are recreating yourself, your sense of, uh, you know, your sense of health, your sleep, by the way, your restfulness, your mindfulness, your meditation. Do we have time for any of this? You know, some of us have got to work, and then we work. And again, you're going to pay one way or another here. You're going to eventually have to pay. It's sad, but it's uh, it's it's going to have to happen. There's a great um, definition by Dr. Sean Acor, who wrote the book on happiness, um, the happiness advantage. He, the 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 definition of happiness is the most accurate term for happiness is one that Aristotle used. It's eudaimonia, which translates not directly to happiness but to human flourishing. So what if we blew up the idea that we as humans need to go for happiness, but instead we chose to just go for flourishing? Do you feel like at work you're flourishing? Or are you dying? Are you just, you know, imploding? And what can you do in your workplace to feel a more of a sense of flourishing? You're listening to the best of the Matt Townsend Show. Probably would have to involve four or five areas at least. Physically, what can you do to stay on top of your game physically? Socially, how are your relationships at work? Emotionally, how do you feel about yourself in the work you're doing, your vision, your purpose, your passion? How do you feel about that? Uh, financially, is it cutting it for you? Is it is it paying off? Um, and... Um, Professionally, are you being stretched? Are you growing? Are you developing? Are you being able to take this uh, this job to another level and be able to, to truly be who you need to be? So that's just simply asking yourself physically, socially, emotionally, financially, um, and kind of I call it spiritually, are you connected to what you're doing in a way that it actually creates flourishing for yourself? And if it doesn't, hey, that's normal. That's normal, right? But the the dilemma is at some point normal might lead to burnout. Only 40 – in her research, only 40 percent, 41 percent of the people she studied are engaged. Uh, according to the Gallup organization, it's uh, only 30 percent of the people that the Gallup organization studied are engaged. But of those that are engaged, she found that 20 percent of those – are engaged to the point of burnout. So you can have too much of a good thing, right? And uh, we we probably need to watch out for that. Some other things I've realized and learned just in my own life um, is is to make sure that I actually am using the strengths that I bring to the table. Um, There's certain things I don't bring to my job that it's not me, it's not my gift, it's not my strength. And if I spend all day doing my job and then trying to get better at the things I'm not good at, um, instead of being able to magnify the top four or five, six things that I do bring to the game, then we might actually find ourselves burning out even faster. Instead of using a strength that would rejuvenate us and actually feel us, make us feel passionate about what we do, we, a lot of us in our jobs might be spending a lot of time making up for our our errors, making up for the things we're not as good at. And I wonder if that just might be the selection of our job. Maybe we aren't in the right job if we have to spend so much time getting so much better at it that 
you know, we're almost running against the grain. I would love to see some research done on how people choose their jobs and if that impacts whether they are happy about it, whether they are feeling burnout. When I'm doing what I am uniquely qualified and gifted, not professionally skilled at because I've gone to school to learn it, but things that I am uniquely gifted at, I feel more passion than when I have to do things that I am not kind of inherently gifted at doing. And by the way, the same I found is true in my own parenting. It doesn't mean I won't need to learn stuff. I totally will. But there's also certain times in my parenting where I am actually using my God-given gifts, my God-given talents, and I bring those talents to that parenting moment, and it, it creates a complete new dynamic in my world with my children. You're listening to the best of The Matt Townsend Show. Right? I might not be the greatest at making dinner, so I'll go learn how to cook. But I will make dinner fun for everyone. Okay, So we'll have a fun dinner because that's kind of my unique gift. And I guess I could improve my cooking. But I could spend hours and hours improving how I cook, and it won't necessarily make me that much happier. Or I could also spend hours and hours at making it more fun and dynamic and exciting and interesting. And that actually does make it seem like less work. So one of the rules I guess I'd give all of us is let's figure out what our unique strengths are and our gifts are. I've talked about it on the show many times. There's a wonderful website. Go to AuthenticHappiness.org, which is a, a it's Penn State University, and you can go on their website, AuthenticHappiness.org, take a test called the VIA test. It's the Character Strengths Test. And it will help you identify from number one to number 24 what your top 24 character strengths are. And hands down, I'm happiest when I'm living my top strengths, period. And by the way, my weakness, my weakest areas, I actually just use my strengths to mitigate those other areas that I'm not so good at. I use my creativity, my humor, my fun. My spirituality, I use my social intelligence as ways to mitigate the fact that uh, I don't have other strengths. And the research hands down shows that's what drives happiness. 93% of people that are happiest are happiest when they use their strengths 10 hours a week. And only one in four adults actually do so. So... It's worth looking into, folks. It's worth checking out. So go to AuthenticHappiness.org to, to get into that. You're listening to the best of the Matt Townsend Show. I am, I've now decided we, we need more family time. We need to be together more as a family. It's amazing how, and, and I get it, everyone's at a different stage of life and family where, uh, you know, it's not easy necessarily for everyone to get off work. Um, we had people coming and going all weekend. But it's also interesting to just – no matter what the age – my kids are all 12 and older. Uh, three of them are, are in high school and junior high and the rest are college students. But to have the college students around, it was way fun to just have them back. And to I noticed to just take some time to tell the stories and to tell the history and to recount the memories and to kind of just regroup we we need we need to find ways to to do this and i know it seems like there's a luxury of time but one of the things i i really want to make sure that we understand is that uh making time 
is is something we do every day. And it was easy, I noticed, for everyone in the family to just fall back and you'd have this lull in conversation and interaction and you look around the room and everyone would be on their phones. But you can find time. You can make time. You can create a weekend. Um, even in the even in the most hectic examples, we uh, I had a uh, I have a brother in law that literally takes how many days? Maybe three days off a year because he just his business demands that you're always there. And um, so even to have him around was was pretty awesome too. There are moments, and so one of the, I guess, goals, the ideas I wanted to bring up during this Coach's Corner is to have us all look at our own lives, and are we making time to be a family? Are we making time to um, to turn off the equipment, to turn off the technology, to just spend some time together? And one of the things I might suggest, too, is that everybody right now, go figure out when your kids are off school, when your kids are going to be home when their summer vacation begins, and make sure you have found some time to take off. It might just be an, uh, you know, an extended weekend. It might be over one of the holidays, uh, a Labor Day or uh, whatever. It doesn't matter, but find a way to get a little more time with the people you love because in the end, um, having the time is one thing. Making the time is another. We've got to be able to to truly be intentional about our lives and intentional about our choices, um, also intentional about um, our interaction. We went on some hikes. We played a lot of tennis. And I sat and I thought, man, even just even just the drive to go get a drink with your kids gives you an opportunity to influence them. You can't influence people that you're not around. You I mean you can you can text them and influence them that way, but then do it. And I just found that I again I've I've been the biggest offender of this, where it's so easy for me myself to just ignore the promptings, ignore the ideas that uh, I need to go do something special or do something different with my family. But please, please, please find everybody. Let's all find a way to give a little more, bit more effort to the family and not even just it doesn't have to be expensive it doesn't have to be big vacations it could just simply being be more attentive uh make sure you spend a little time more time every day talking ask more questions listen more to what they're saying find out what each of your kids are going through um some of my kids would be gone for two or three days of our weekend of our week um away with friends having fun and I missed those kids. Why weren't they around? I wanted them to be around. And when they came around, I was more attentive to make sure that I could hear their stories and know what's going on with them. Not to make any of us feel guilty, but in the end, it matters. It truly does. And time is no longer an excuse because you have time now. You do. We we just don't use it. We don't make it a priority because, you know, we've got to finish our latest game or I've got to try my next thing or, you know, go check out my Facebook feed. Be careful because uh, this time with your family, you're not getting it back. Fun stuff. Interesting. We're all here to learn, doing what we can to make life a little bit better by our strengths and uh, by our engagement. This is the Matt Townsend Show.
With the cost of college education rising more and more, um, our students today are struggling to make ends meet. As a result, some are going hungry, and that makes it incredibly difficult for them to focus and succeed in school. Joining us to talk about it is Dr. Daphne Hernandez, who's a researcher who focuses on poverty and believes that campus hunger is a significant factor behind inequality in college completion rates and that food scholarships may be the solution. Dr. Daphne Hernandez, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you for having me. So talk to us about it. How common is um, is it for college students not to have enough food? Yeah, so we're realizing um, that this is this basic need that we have not really focused upon um, college students. So for many years, we've been focusing on tuition and their books, but we've never haven't thought about their basic needs, such as food and housing. And we're finding, um, depending the school, we're finding that, you know, it can be up to 50% of the students are experiencing food insecurity, wow. which is the limited access to food because of resources. Um, and it does vary. Um, there's definitely higher rates among community college students. Yeah, but 50% is, that's incredible. I mean, I see it here at Brigham Young University. We bring out some pizza, we bring out food, and they're, these students are, it's like they haven't seen food for a while. And it's probably, I always thought it was just, you know, they're eating a lot of Top Ramen and, and not uh, eating healthy food. But I, it never dawned on me that a lot of these people are really at the end of their rope that financially. Yeah, we've never really thought about in terms of um, why students may be, you know, falling asleep in class, why students may not be doing as well academically. Um, what we're finding out that these students are working harder than ever. They are not only attending college, but they are working full-time jobs and sometimes working the night shift. Um, so they're definitely working hard to make ends meet, um, but definitely having a hard time doing so. Um, colleges, you know, I recommend colleges looking at their retention rates and, and thinking about, you know, it may not be that uh, courses are as challenging as they perceive. It's that they are, students are doing other things to pay off that tuition, to pay off um, basic needs and, and not doing as well. And consequently, we have students dropping out of college, not because they find the work challenging, you know, the schoolwork challenging, is that they need to fulfill a basic need, which is housing right. and food. Well, and, and they may have come from um, a, a family maybe where they were also receiving subsidized foods like CHIP programs or other programs, and then all of a sudden you turn into an 18-year-old and go to college, it doesn't mean your family all of a sudden has money to give you money for food, and then they're on their own. And, and so, yeah, you're, you're suggesting that this is one of the factors behind the inequality and why some groups uh, are, are not able to complete college rates like other groups. Right. So what's really interesting is that we have these policies and programs in place during childhood. We have WIC that focuses on children from ages zero to five. We have the National School Lunch Program that is available for children from the moment they enter kindergarten through um, 12th grade. But after that point, we don't have uh, programs that really focus on children that become adults and are trying to uh, complete college. So, um, you know, as students enter college, two things are happening. They're losing that support 
um, in terms of food if we think about the National School Lunch Program. And they could also be losing support in terms of their families. Um, some families um, choose not to support their children when they enter college, and some families just cannot financially support their children as they enter college. So there's a lot of mixed factors that are going on as children enter college, and it it makes it very difficult to complete. Hmm. Are there any universities or colleges or community colleges that have any programs to address this issue right now? Yes. So several colleges around um, the United States are actively trying to reduce uh, food insecurity. They have placed food pantries in, in, um, in, at their universities. Uh, right now, I'm teaming up with the Houston Food Bank and Houston Community College, and we're providing what's called a food scholarship to students. This is um, similar to a farmer's market. Uh, students can attend food distributions twice a month, and they're able to obtain up to 60 pounds of food. So it's a very innovative and different idea, different approach from your typical food pantry. Um, but it is a different, a, di- a different strategy that we're hoping to see um, positive effects in the long term. Excellent. Is it? Um, and then I'm assuming with all of these things, we always research and evaluate the 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 benefit of it um is that something that you're that you're actually researching now yes so thank you thanks to the Kresge foundation and the william t grant foundation uh my colleague dr sarah golder grab from temple university and i are evaluating the food scholarship program for a period of two years Um, we're looking at the effects of the food scholarship on college persistence specifically academic outcomes. Um, And we're just hoping that, I mean, we have a positive sense that this will be good um, for the students and um, consequently for for the college as well. Absolutely. I mean, it's interesting because the whole idea of education would be to give these people a leg up, get them on their way, help them create the life they want to create. And yet it could be something as simple as food that they, that is, that's going to hinder this. Um, and and yet, uh, are there other solutions? I mean, I mean, it seems like you're at a university. We give these students, athletes, have food passes. We give. I mean, it's it's kind of a common thing feeding students on a university. It just seems more like you just need to somehow allocate funds. Right. I mean, we we kind of the way we're perceiving it is fairly simple solution. I mean, it's food. We have, I mean, it's the United States. We do actually have an abundance of food. Um, What what can be easier than providing um, students food, help them um, complete college, and help them lift themselves out of poverty? Long term, this could have national implications where we're not only helping students complete college, but it could um, lower the number of students who are on food assistant programs, you know, down the road, become adults. Right. So um, we're seeing it as a fairly simple solution. Yeah. Well, and and boy, it it does show you, though, it, it could be a cycle, right? You and you're undernourished your entire childhood. You're undernourished going through college. It's hard. And I'm assuming, too, that even getting some of these um, supplemental nutrition assistance program benefits or even food pantries that can help, a lot of people may not know where the resources are located. 
True. Um, so a lot of students may not even know that they're aware for some of these programs or that the food you know, food pantries are open to all. Um, they're, you know, you, you don't need to qualify. Um, and that is also a challenge. So students may have not been um, on SNAP or WIC or National uh, School Lunch Program their t entire lives. They get to college, they see these challenges, and they may not be aware that these programs exist or that a food pantry is open to anyone. And mm. so getting that message out and communicating um, that there are these resources available is, is critical. Yeah, absolutely. We're speaking with Daphne Hernandez, uh, who earned her Ph.D. in Applied Developmental and Educational Psychology at Boston College and is currently an assistant professor in the Department of Health and Human Performance at the University of Houston um, and is talking to us today about how food scholarships could help more students finish college, where they could actually get uh, some some help with their food and, and getting free food so that they could actually have the energy and the ability to focus at school as well. Do you do you think there would be stigmas associated with this? I mean, I could see there's already uh, some stigma associated with using stamps or any type of government assistance. Um, do you see that being a problem? Yes. Uh, we are concerned about that, um, that there could be a stigma. And so, Students don't want to accept it. Um, you know, it could be, it could be again something where they haven't um, needed assistance and now they do, and so they feel the shame um, that they are not able to um, help themselves, you know, independently. But um, you know, we all need help from time to time, and if this means that accepting this program, accepting food from either a food pantry or food scholarship will help you long-term, then I encourage students to do it. Um, we all need help at, at some point in our lives. Oh, absolutely. And I think in the end, we'd, we, it just is a no-brainer. Um, but again, yeah, you're always up against you know bias and history and all of these other things. What can we just do? Uh, I mean, as just an average Joe sending my kids off to school, um, are there things I can do to make sure that I'm not uh, overlooking this problem, even for my own kids or for the for the for others, are there ways that I can help? Um, well, of course, asking your your kids, you know, did you you know did you eat? Did you you know do you have enough um, money for food? Um, but also letting letting your children know that they can talk to their professors about this. So I think there's also another stigma of letting professors know that they that students are facing these challenges. Um, as professors, we're the first line of defense. Um, if a student comes to me and has a challenge, I will make it my priority to see how I can reduce that challenge so that student can do well in my course. And so there are things that universities can do for students that are having difficulties. And I think, you know, there's there's two things going on there. There's the whole bias, like not wanting to um, acknowledge that that you're um, facing these challenges, but also not aware that the university can assist students in some way, um, at least temporarily, to address address the issue. Well, boy, and yeah, if a student's, because a lot of the professors are the front line, right, because they're talking to the students, and if you see that they just don't seem right, something doesn't, they don't seem right. healthy, then what a, I mean, to know the resources would be so valuable. Yes, 
yes. Um, you know, if I see a student falling asleep, um, I mean, I think this is just um, really important for all faculty. Um, if students are falling asleep in your class, don't take it personally and think they're disinterested. It could be something else. And, um, you know, we, we as faculty should really make an effort um, to assist students, not just on educational front, but on basic needs. And if basic needs are met, then they will do much better educationally. Absolutely. Daphne Hernandez, thank you so much for your time, your insights, uh, and just helping us learn about something that seems obvious, and yet many of us just, we don't even see it as as part of our life. Powerful, uh, powerful opportunities, folks, to lift those around us by simply making sure we're paying attention to the basic needs of, of those that we're engaged with. We might even see this at work. You might see this in anywhere in your life, that people aren't just lethargic for no reason. Maybe they're also undernourished as well. We will continue doing what we can, folks, to bring you the information, the ideas you need to uh, elevate life, right, and make life and the world a better place for one another. This is The Matt Townsend Show. Because life doesn't come with a handbook, you need a coach. Here's Dr. Matt and his coaching corner. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, many times your spouse, they may seem a little critical, but they also may just be trying to give you uh, some some ideas, some creative criticism. Maybe it's anything to get you to try something different, to do something different. And so today I wanted to take a few minutes to talk about how do you take criticism from your spouse? And uh, many would be like, well, I shouldn't have to. Well, you shouldn't have to. But um, uh, it may not – it may be that they simply don't know how to frame it in, a, in any other way other than it sounding critical. Or it might be, honestly, that you are just kind of sensitive to feedback, especially accurate feedback. I know many times uh, I, I just wish people would just not give me feedback. Except deep down, I also know – you need the feedback, right? So um, remember, uh, I'm going to give you just some rules that I've learned as I uh, work with people, as I get feedback myself, as I'm in my own relationships. Uh, generally, if you kind of um, recognize one simple rule about f- feedback or criticism is that all criticism is more of a reflection of the person giving the criticism than it is of you, right? So um, you know, some people might nitpick certain things. Others might nitpick other things. And if you notice the feedback you're getting, many times it's very much customized to what the needs are, the ideas are, what what one person feels is appropriate or not appropriate. So it, it's not something you necessarily need to be offended by. It's not something you necessarily need to take um, any serious offense by. So I guess recognize where the criticism is coming from. Recognize that, you know, if they're if they're critiquing how much money you make, you know, there's probably a history here of of why they're bringing up money. And it might be that they came from money. It might be that they money's really important to them. Um, another another thing I always believe is check your sources, right? So 
a lot of times people will criticize you maybe about your your home cleaning skills, how clean the house is, but that may also be the exact same person that never, ever, 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 ever cleans the house. And so it's easy for them to maybe criticize, but they don't help clean the house. Is um, notice the notice when the conversation and when we're getting the feedback. Uh, if the criticism is coming in in the most angry, volatile, negative, ugly part of the conversation, I wouldn't weigh it so heavily, if that makes sense. Sometimes uh, you don't trust. I had a person once say, you know, uh, you always trust a drunk person because drunk people always tell the truth. And I'm like, you know, kind of, I guess, but they also wet themselves and they also, you know, can't stand up straight. So I don't know how much I would weigh what they're saying when they're drunk. And it might be true to their heart because they're willing to say it when they're intoxicated, but it also doesn't mean it's any more accurate when they're drunk. It's also no more accurate when they're really angry. So if someone's really angry and then they get all critical, I don't know that I would weigh it as more truthful. What it might be telling you is, boy, when they are keeping some things back, or it also might be telling you that when they have no filters on, uh, they'll say anything. Um, Is your partner, sometimes um, you might notice that you're more critical of your kids when they're doing things that you wish you wouldn't do. Right. So when I see my kids biting or picking at their nails, I get mad because I'm like, don't do that because I do that. And I want you to not be like me. Stop doing that. So check your sources. Uh, There there might be reasons why the criticism is coming out. Um, It also might be just their pet peeve, their obsession. They may have been raised that you make your bed and you make it a certain way and it's made the minute the person gets up, it's made. And it's just, you know, that is just your spouse's pet peeve. And if it's their pet peeve, you don't always need to take that as, you know, normal or the law. One thing you could do, too, when somebody's trying to to push a lot of feedback or criticism on you is start looking for the truth in what they're saying. And so if you can find some truth in what they're saying, then what you could do is just take the truth, no matter how small, work on that, and disregard the rest. You know, there is power in being able to show other people that you actually can see truth. So when somebody says, man, you spend a lot of time on your phone, don't immediately deny it. No, I don't. Find out where there's truth. You know what? I really do. I love listening to podcasts. I love whatever, whatever, whatever. Find the truth that, that, that is there and, and see if you can't work with the truth. In healthy relationships, there usually is more truth in criticism than actually criticism. <laughs> it's just somebody that's, that's trying to help give you some information. They also are a lot of times with people that actually care about you and are trying to help you be better. Um, underneath the criticism is actually a deeper pain that they might be having. If my wife is upset with me always being on my phone, it might be really what she wants is more attention from me, more work, more help, more support around the house. The, and, and so if you think about it, if you wanted to give somebody effective 
critical feedback, it might be smarter to share what you really want instead of just critiquing what you don't like. Sometimes it doesn't do any good to just tell everybody what you don't like to see. I don't like to see you on your phone or why do we always eat the same thing every day? Maybe it might be better to tell what you'd like to see more of. Is there any way I could help and find ways to to find some new recipes? How could I help make a meal with a new recipe this week? That might actually be a better way to do it. So you could actually acknowledge what they're saying, admit what they're what they're what's truthful about what they're saying, accept it, actually appreciate what they're doing. I totally agree with you. I'm on my phone all the time. I admit that it's I a lot of times defer to my phone to when I'm bored or when I'm when I have downtime and and I'm sorry it makes you upset. And I'll work on making it better. And then actually make a plan to to do something better. Don't turn, though, as we're doing and getting feedback and critique from others, don't turn over your self-esteem to the other person. They shouldn't have the on and off switch to you feeling like you're worth something. And a lot of this, I think, comes from just our childhood. If, you know, if we if we would be critiqued by a parent and it impacted us as a child and we felt, you know, put down and deeply unloved and uncared for, Sometimes just recognize if you're feeling those same feelings today, that doesn't mean you have to take the feedback today like a child, like you would have taken it as a child 25 years ago or 40 years ago. You can actually relook at it today and put it through another filter. Maybe they don't know what they're saying. Maybe they don't understand how this is impacting you. But don't empower anyone to, to change your moods consistently. Anyway, interesting stuff, folks. It's a life of feedback. We're all going to get it one way or another. And interestingly, the more successful you get, the more powerful you get, the higher you get up on the ladder, the more people are sometimes trying to mix you up a bit, make it a little harder for you, and more people have an opinion about you. It's not always fun, is it? We'll continue the journey more straight ahead. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you be the good in the world. Kimberly Giles is the president and founder of Clarity Point Coaching. She's a regular guest on our program. And a few months back, Kim joined the show to talk about how best to handle disagreements that become emotional. I began the interview by talking about how emotional issues can be a point of conflict and asking what can that division and disagreement do to a person and those you disagree with? Anytime you've got a real emotional issue, you can have close friends, family members, maybe even your spouse who disagrees with you on this issue. And that can be rough. You had a couple write to you because they're they're struggling in their marriage because one of them feels one way, the other feels another way. They don't they don't know how to kind of cut through it all. Right. And they they said they they tried to make a rule to just not talk about yeah. it at all. And inevitably, it's There's all an over oppor- the place, yeah. right? It just it's in front of our face all the time. Yeah. A story comes on the news, and and one of them will make a comment, and that just gets this argument going again. And, totally. and they said they feel bad because they adore their spouse, mm-hmm. but they really want their spouse to agree with them, and so they're they're really campaigning to get their spouse to agree with them. 
Isn't that – and it's it's interesting too. We want to be united on this. This is why I think it's such an important issue because as soon as we kind of make it through this storm of this, we will have learned to collaborate and be together on issues, not not always agreeing, but knowing how to handle it better. Right. And and the reason I answered their question in, in my column was – that this is really a microcosm for our whole society right. right now, right? We're all our country is very divided, and it's not just this issue. No. There's politics. Quite I mean, how few. many, how many men and women may not agree on the the whole issue about Trump and what he said about a woman journalist? Oh, yeah. I mean, well, and so I everyone even, can fight about that. I know couples who one's liberal and one's yeah. conservative, and, totally. and they feel very strongly. So, so, what what advice do you give? What do we do? Well. The number one thing that I teach my clients is a different perspective about life and why we're here and why there are differences. And see, I really believe that we're on the planet to learn yeah. and especially to learn to love, to learn to love the way God loves, to love ourselves and other people. I think that is the main purpose of us being on the planet. Now, God could have made all of us exactly the same. Yeah. And that would have made this a lot easier. Oh, so much easier. <laughs> And with so few, if he could have made fewer choices. Oh, yeah. Just for all of us. But isn't it, it's interesting that on this planet, we've got all these different races and cultures and opinions and different types of people. And I really believe that it was intentionally created this way because differences challenge us Mm -hmm. to learn to love at a different level than we would go if all we deal with is people who agree with us. And so I told this couple, the one thing that you've got to understand about your marriage is you always marry your greatest teacher. Yeah. You sign up That's for so this true. class. Even if you didn't know you were or you didn't intend it to be. And usually you don't. You don't when you get married. Right. You don't realize that this person, this person is going to be able to push buttons in you that no one else can push. So true. So inevitably, they're going to have this beautiful opportunity to help you become a better, wiser, stronger, more loving person. Right. But you've got to be seen it that way so that every interaction, every disagreement, everything that happens between you and your spouse, you recognize it's today's lesson so cool. on love. And this person is is really in your life to help you and serve you. Instead of thinking you. they're just evil or yeah, they or just wrong. don't get it. Yeah. Yeah. So So it's a teaching moment. Everything's a teaching moment. And if the highest lesson is love, but so can I still have – I could still disagree in the, the premise of gay marriage. I could still have a religious belief that says it's not what God wants and I could still love the person. Well, just recognize that this person having an opposite opinion of you could be your perfect opportunity to grow and mm-hmm. learn how to love people who are different. And and I – you know, we've talked about this on the yeah. radio before because I have an African-American daughter – um, oh, I, I have a gay uncle. Yeah. Okay, so so I really feel strongly about this principle in my life that all human beings have the same value. Yeah, and my job is to learn to love them, and not not judge, not mm-hmm. convince, not right. tell them they're wrong, but right. right, but love and support them. And so if I can love and support and, and get the get the paradigm in there that this is a learning moment, that and the number one learning here is love. And then what do we do with the differences? Okay. Because <laughs> that's like – because it seems like it's the, it's the difference that divi- – everyone always say, well, of course I love them. Yeah. But what they're doing is messed agree. up and we don't like that. And I don't want my kids to think that. Okay. So one other principle of human nature I just want our listeners to understand is that everybody on the planet has attached 
their ideas and opinions, everything they think and feel is literally attached to who they are. Yeah. They think what they think and feel is who they are. Right. So if you immediately tell them they're wrong, you're unwilling to listen, to honor and respect their right to their opinion, you need to understand that they literally will feel that you're disrespecting and devaluing them. Mm -hmm. You can't devalue their thoughts and feelings without devaluing them. So it's really important you understand that so you handle this in a way that still validates their worth as equal as yours, even though their opinion is different from yours. So that that's the key, huh? Because if, if you can't validate their worth, this is really about their worth. This doesn't change their worth, their value, their – you always use the diamond metaphor. It doesn't change the value of the diamond. Yeah, their intrinsic worth as a human soul just because they have a different opinion. You just have to figure out how to communicate that without – and not and and reassure them that you know that that you believe they're beautiful, amazing, wonderful people. That's right. So Hmm. you – First off, when somebody has a different opinion, you've got to keep in mind, even if you disagree with their opinion, that you value them as a person. And in valuing them, that means you've got to honor and respect their right to be where they are in their journey. And one of the things I talked about in the article, I believe life's a classroom, but I believe no one on the entire planet got the same class as I got. No, exactly. Yeah. And so my spouse, my friends, they've had a totally different journey and really their opinions and their perspective is a is a result of what they've experienced mm. and what they've learned and because I've had different experiences I see the world in a different way. That's even if so even if you come from the same minority group, if you come from the same sex or gender, if you come from the same church, nobody. You're saying nobody's no, had well, your <laughs> same game. My husband and I, we have all those things in common, but he grew up in a really small town. He was a country boy. Yeah. He wasn't exposed to a lot of people who are different, variety. I was a city girl. Yeah. I came from a very different type of family, even though we have the same religion yeah. and race yeah. and all those things. Our viewpoint is really different. I have seen the world from a totally different place than he's seen that's it. That's right. So that's the first thing you've got to take into account is that this person is really the sum result of their experiences. Mm -hmm. And they can only see the world the way they see it. That's all they can see. So you can't expect them to be able to see what you can see. Which is kind of your job really is if we could could all talk about this in a way that I could share what I see and you could see what I see, hear it. You don't have to agree with it, but try to see it from my frame of reference. That's what makes like the same-sex marriage thing such an interesting thing. Because more and more people have somebody they know, they care about, they love that's gay. And it's a totally different experience when you're talking about my family, Uh somebody that I love versus those people that I just think of as strange people that I don't know. I think the same thing is true. If if you're in a situation where you're not around a lot of African-Americans and you don't get – you don't get that they're you. Well, they're just you. I know my daughter, poor daughter, has that experience I mean, all the she, time around exactly. here because people. This is not a diverse no, area. No. People really say the wrong Which things. Which is why it's so important know. to have her there, so that we can start changing the views and 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 understand her as just she's a human. But I have to explain to her often that these people who make the stupid comment to her, it's not that they're racist. Mm. It's just that they haven't had experience and they're seeing the world from (laughs) where they've been and they don't know uh, anything different. 
So we've got to have some wisdom and compassion about other people and their experiences and know that, you know, maybe as life goes on and they have different experiences, their perspectives will change. Mm -hmm. And we kind of have to give them that. But it's really important we're respecting and honoring their right to be where they are and to know what they know. And have that perspective. They have that right. It's the only perspective they could possibly have. Yeah, what else are they going to bring? Well, and it's also – because this can go both ways. So, I mean, you could go to the most liberal city with the most liberal group of people that are supposedly so open-minded to everything, and they'll tolerate everything except religious conservatism. Yeah, which you know what I mean? Which is, is like, the they're a bunch of foreigners, <laughs> hicks from the sticks. So, I mean, it really can go everywhere. And it's – so it's almost like whoever makes you uncomfortable is a great lesson. This is an important lesson for you. And it is probably in your life specifically because you need it. <laughs> which is why you're uncomfortable. <laughs> That's, That's why right. you're uncomfortable. That's so I mean, true. I think the universe is going to throw at you exactly what you need to overcome to learn yeah. to love next. That was Kim Giles, uh, one of our contributors from Clarity Point Coaching and uh, doing what we can to uh, open our minds and open our hearts. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Hey, when it comes to uh, talent management, remember, it's always about people management. These are all res- these are all relationships. And there's always going to be a relationship uh, measurement as even as uh, he, Mark was taking us through his content um, from the Talent Magnet book, every one of these ideas he was talking about a better boss, a brighter future, and a bigger vision each one of those, and then by the way, the ability to tell the story those are all created through interaction. You know, if you have a better boss by how you interact with them and how they interact with you. You know if you have a brighter future in your organization based on interaction. You know, based on it's not just the fact that you have a really good mission statement or a really great company party. It's about the fact that you know what your purpose is in this organization. You can see some light of day from where you are to where you want to be professionally. You can see that you're going to grow and be developed you can see that because of your experience in the organization, you are actually elevating your abilities in your game, which will only increase your ability to get a job tomorrow. That all, every one of those things happens through interaction with human beings. Those human beings are your coworkers, your bosses, your team meetings, your, your leaders, your HR department. We're doing this all day long, constantly. Um, and so remember, as you're, this is still about human relationships. This is about creating um, understanding. I, I, can't, uh, I, I, I can't give too many details, but I've sat in meetings recently with, uh, with my clients. And as we were talking, the children didn't – it was a family meeting. The children didn't feel like their parents were listening. And the parents – Basically, we're like, oh, please, of course we're listening. And yet the kids sat there and they were eloquent children that were teaching, that were literally voicing in a way that I hadn't heard kids ever voice. They were sharing their feelings, their voices, and they were being very, very real and very upfront. They weren't 
hiding. They weren't fighting. They weren't flighting. They were just communicating. But the parents couldn't hear it, and the parents were so frustrated because the children were so um, not just conforming to what they want. And it was creating tension. And I, I sat there and I thought, boy, this this is this is a pretty typical argument issue that you know parents might have with their kids. Um, but the kids had also been hurt, and it's really complicated. And I can't give you too many details without giving a lot of detail. You're listening to the best of the Matt Townsend Show. It doesn't matter. Um, if we don't feel understood, it doesn't matter why the parents aren't understanding them. If the children don't feel understood by their parents, they're not going to change. They're not going to bend. And it doesn't matter why this, this communication isn't working. Um, it doesn't matter in an organization. If an employee doesn't see the, the future of their organization – um, it doesn't matter who we can blame. A lot of times we think it's about who do we blame for that. It doesn't matter who to blame because if that employee doesn't see the future, um, then they don't see the future and you're going to pay for it. If they don't see the bigger vision of what the organization's trying to do, then they don't see it. If they don't have – if they don't see that their boss is engaged and, and really helping them fulfill their mission, it's not going to happen. So – we have to almost go the extra mile on this process. If you are a boss or if you're an employee, we have to make sure you're looking into your organization. What can you do to push your boss to be a better boss? What can you do to make sure you understand your future in the organization? And what can you do to actually connect into the bigger vision? So you have to be proactive as an employee and bosses need to be proactive as bosses to make sure that those needs are being met for their people. Because if they're not, it doesn't matter why it didn't happen. You're losing leverage. You're losing ground with the people that matter most. So it's just, it's basic business, right? It's business 101 and it's human relationships 101. Um, It's not enough to just keep losing talent. You can keep losing talent in your organization and, and chalk it up to whatever. But if you don't fix it, the actual talent problem, then it's just not going anywhere and it'll spiral. In, to one degree or another. It also, by the way, remember, it doesn't mean you can't get by because average talent many times is fine. That's why the enemy of the best is the good. Sometimes sometimes your organization might want to be real that we can't afford, we can't have the top talent. So let's just get really good with average talent or let's get really good with what we've got or what we can get. It doesn't have to be top 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 talent. And again, top talent's highly subjective, right? Anyway, we're all trying to work on it one way or another, but take more control of your own approach. Don't just sit back and hope that your boss and your company hand this all to you. Make sure you're proactively leading your life toward it. Good stuff. We'll take a break, folks. Continue the journey. This is the Matt Townsend Show. You're listening to the best of the Matt Townsend Show. One of the most important roles I think we play as as adults, as parents, and I see it in my office a lot as I as I meet with clients. Um, we have a very specific responsibility to help our children find their light, right? To find their gift, to find what they are bringing to the world. And in in doing so, we have a responsibility to bring some hope, and but it takes some discernment. You've got to you've got to figure out with your kids what they can do to um, 
to go attack the world and impact the world and be a positive force in the world. And I wonder if we do enough of it because I think we think uh, the schools are going to help our children find themselves and figure out their their gifts and their talents and their abilities. And I, I don't think that's the school's responsibility. I don't think it's your teacher's your children and their teachers' um, job to to go figure out your child's talents. That, I think, is uniquely the parent's responsibility. Um, and and it, you don't, it doesn't have to be oppressive and scary. It's It should just be a natural part of life. What do you see your children uniquely gifted to do? What about their personality um, can set them up for a great life? And, and you might be worth giving your children this kind of feedback – I have children that are, just like me in a way, incredibly optimistic about life. In fact, many times I feel like that's a weakness of mine because I'm so optimistic that, you know, the world can be falling around me and I'm still thinking, hey, we still have a chance. But one of the the issues I found is um, I have, have, for example, children who uh, their friends are all out selling pest control door to door, you know, which, hey – Great. I think that's awesome. If you can go make, uh, you know, forty, fifty thousand dollars in a summer and then that can support you for a year or two, go do it. I think that's great. I just know that my kids can't do that very well. That's not in their – I mean they could go get it done. But it's not in their wheelhouse of something that they could do comfortably or something that they would enjoy doing. Um, they would have a nervous breakdown <laughs> having to, to, you know, talk about pests with people – in another state all summer long. But my I just had a son that went to Colorado to do research and they still had to go pretty much door to door, but they were doing research. Didn't pay as well, but they they were giving back to families and, and communities doing some research for, for um, a program here at BYU. And he found his gift. He found his ability. He found something he loves to do. And he's so excited. He's excited to go do it again next summer. But before that, he was battling to try to decide if he should go sell pest control in Oklahoma. And I looked at him and I'm like, would you like to do that? And he's like, not really. And I'm like, then why are you even considering it? We, we need to be the guide on the side for these kids. And help him understand their own personality. Now, sure, if he had gone, he would have learned that he's not good at that, that he would have learned that. But he doesn't have to make the mistake or go have the trial if we could guide him a little bit more and help him understand what he's good at, help him understand what he really does well. Is he a communicator? Does he tend to want to be with people or be be with less people? Is he more of a thinker? And, and start guiding him to what he does well. There's assessments you can take all over the place. Um, and, and, and what are his unique gifts and traits? What does he love to do? What would he spend his time doing anyway? Um, well, he'll just play video games. Great. Okay. So he likes technology. Is he good at technology? Then lean him toward technology. But parents, we need to give our kids some direction. There's nothing more powerful for me than when my wife once told me, I really think that you could be a good, like, TV reporter or anchor. The minute she said that, I finally had the liberty and the freedom to go after what I wanted to do instead of pretending like I was going to be a lawyer or a doctor because that's what the people in my life did. So parents, let's step up. 
let's give our kids a little more direction, a little more insight. You don't have to do it for them, but you can definitely give them some feedback in a loving way. And I think it'll go a long way for the rest of us. Lift the world by lifting our children. You're listening to the best of the Matt Townsend Show. And we talk about self-esteem, right? So we want to we want to have this belief in ourself, but uh, we got to be really clear what self we're talking about. Because when you think of you, you are not just you. You are made up of a body. You're made up of a mind. You're made up of a spirit. You are made up of a bunch of different thoughts and paradigms and beliefs about who you are. So be really careful. Um, as you try to grow self-esteem, you you got to focus somewhere. And my concern is that many people spend the majority of their time trying to build self-esteem, probably working on only one of the three components of self-esteem, which is the body. So your body, a great tool, right, a great source, brings you the chemistry, you know, allows you to feel the pleasure and the pain of the world. You can rip, you can get those ripped abs like I've got, you know, buns of steel, muscles galore, rippling. Okay, don't be rude. And you you can have all of that going for you. You can be stronger than everyone else. You can be faster. You can uh, financially go make all the money you want to take care of your body and your body's needs. You can drive the nice car, something to put your body into. You can buy the best clothes. And interestingly, it won't necessarily make you feel better. It will for a while. But eventually, if you want true self-esteem, you're going to have to go deeper than the body, right? So eventually, you're going to want to – you're going to jump into your mind. And the mind is where you, you know, you want to start, you know, having some power. You want to be more popular. Do you want some of the things that are less tangible? Not a car necessarily, but you want prestige. You want popularity. You want people to like you. And you'll realize that your car's great, but it doesn't mean people actually like you. They might just use you for your car. So as you move into your mind, you're going to, you're going to, you're going to like it. Your mind likes, you know, looking good. It likes, being popular, it likes having, you know, maybe not even, you're not even going to sit there and like sit in your money and just play in all your money. That's the tangible stuff. But you just like knowing that you have more than others. So that becomes a mind game for you now. Now your mind is being satisfied because you're getting ahead supposedly in life. The problem with your mind, though, is um, you're never going to be good enough because eventually you're going to have a neighbor move in that will have more money than you. So your mind alone isn't where you're going to find self-esteem either. It's not going to be in your mind that you – because your mind's constantly going to be comparing you. And you're either going to have to be better or just worse than everywhere else. And your mind's going to kind of bifurcate it and make it an either or. So the true source of essence is always going to be in the spiritual side. Essence is your ability to have less and be okay with it. It's your ability to be present. Essence is that good feeling you feel when you are doing something that is noble and good that you love to be about. It's holding your grandchild. It's holding your child. It's that silent night in the middle of the night when you're just rocking your baby back to sleep and you just feel peace. It's when you're serving. It's when you're out in nature. That's where your true sense of who you are comes from. It's usually in the quiet times we find ourselves. It's not in the loud, busy dance halls or bars that you're going to find your true identity. Super fun. But in the end, you got to be okay with yourself. 
You got to know what your purpose is. You've got to feel some connection to a higher power. Your true self, your true esteem is going to come from knowing that why you're here on this earth and what you're doing here and being connected to some bigger purpose. And I'd also say being connected to a higher power. And you can go determine what that higher power is. But if we're not connected to it, then what can you esteem? The highest power I've or the highest esteem I have is knowing that I'm a child of some of God, of something bigger than myself. That brings me more self-confidence than anything I could do or have or say. Doing what we can to, to help you be the best talent in the world. Because life doesn't come with a handbook, you need a coach. Here's Dr. Matt and his coaching corner. Welcome back, friends. One of the things I did want to focus a little bit on, um, do a little coach's corner on, you know, relationships and and life. That's that's what I tend to focus a lot of my practice on, a lot of what I spend every day working on. Um, but I, I also have found um, that in the end, we need to be growing. You need to be growing. I need to be growing. Do you sense in your life – this is a rhetorical question. You don't need to answer it out loud. Do you sense in your life that you are uh, making the change you need to make? Are you are – there, are there just some obvious things that you know you should be working on but you're, you're just not getting to them for whatever reason? And so I wanted to see if I couldn't uh, help spark you to to take a little inventory on yourself some of the things, by the way, that you need to change are are actually good things. They're, they're, they're things you're doing. You maybe just need to do more of them. Um, there's a great quote, of course, by Henry David Thoreau, for every thousand hacking at the leaves of evil, there is one striking at the root. And so uh, many times we're, we're distracted working on the wrong things, the leaves, um, instead of getting down to the deep-rooted issues that we all face, the deep-rooted changes that we need to make. Um, so a couple of things. Uh, there are four what, basically what I call introspective questions that will help you take your goals right down to the roots and then grow it from there. First thing you could be talking about is the fruit that you're going after. What is the one thing that if you did it consistently and you did it effectively would positively impact your life. What is that one thing that, you know, you just go go get that one thing done. Go get that one thing to happen. And if you would do that one thing consistently and do it effectively, it, it, you know it would impact your life. Write that down. That should be the fruit that we're after, right? Getting that one thing done. Uh, another question we could ask are what are you doing or not doing right now that keeps you from achieving the goal that you know is important to you? And so what do you do every day or what do you not do every day that keeps you from achieving your goal? So what we're trying to do there is not just uh, – the first question was about identifying our goal and making it definable. Next, we want to identify our distraction. What's getting in the way of us – from living our goal, that one thing that we should do every day. What is the one thing that keeps distracting you from your goal? Another uh, question we could ask are what fears, assumptions, or triggers are you making that keep uh, feuding with 
you know, this deeper problem? What's what else? What fears do you have that might be underlying the uh, and um, underlining and, and being a critical part of what's leading to your lack of success? So, for example, is there is there a reason if you say you want to lose weight? Then we go through the process of going after the fruit. So what is the one thing that you know if you could do consistently and effectively would positively impact your life in regards to you losing the weight? Well, I mean, I guess it could be I, 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 need, to, I need to exercise more. Great. What are you doing or not doing that keeps you from achieving your exercise goal? Well, I'm not exercising A, but what am I doing is instead I'm – uh, doing more writing during the time that I should be re- or walking and exercising, or I'm um, I'm setting up meetings or appointments during the time that I've set up my time to exercise. Great. What are the deeper or um, less flattering or more personal, embarrassing reasons that you keep doing that? Why? What is it about? And by the way, um, I actually went through this once uh, as I was trying to figure out how to have a healthier diet. I said I wanted to lose weight. I wanted to be healthier, but I always found out that I was – I for some reason was always eating at McDonald's. And what I realized is that you know, I, I eat at McDonald's because I – it's the – by the way, the restaurant closest to my office. And so why would I always eat at McDonald's if I said I wanted to lose weight? And what I found out was it's – well, it's because I want to see more clients is what I would say. So I would pack my schedule really deep and I was seeing clients all of the time. And because I had so many client meetings, then I I wasn't able to get a healthy lunch is what I would tell myself. But what I really realized uh, deep, deep down is that there is, uh, you know, part of it is that I really don't like to make my lunch. I'm kind of lazy. I I don't want to do it. It's too much work to have to think this thing ahead. So instead, I don't. And I just get into the pattern. I get into the system of uh, of avoiding the real issue that's going on here, which was more about my laziness. And I found that by asking ourselves the question, what's the what's kind of the embarrassing truth? What's the deeper, less flattering, personal embarrassing reason that really keeps me from meeting my goal. The minute I get down to the more embarrassing one, now the non-embarrassing one is I like to serve people, so I like to have a lot of appointments. But the more embarrassing one is that I'm just lazy. I'm just lazy. And sometimes we don't allow ourselves to go find and deal with the embarrassing issue that's deeper down. And by not ever evaluating or actually taking on the real issue, we we never make our goals actually go anywhere. What triggers, what assumptions do we make that keep us from going? And what's the most important thing I need to do today to start dealing with that laziness thing, the deeper embarrassing issue? And if we would just do that, for heaven's sakes, what would happen? Holy cow, we might actually end up moving forward on the goal. So just basic questions to dig a little deeper into why we can't make something happen, why we can't make our goal happen. Uh, that's, that's why we're here, to give you the tools you need. We'll continue straight ahead. We'll be talking about uh, what to do, how to lead when you lack authority. If you don't have the position, 
If you don't have the call, the job, the responsibility, can you still be the leader in the room? Absolutely. We'll tell you how up next on The Matt Townsend Show. Good leadership begins in one place. It's inside of you. If you can learn to lead ourselves, and uh, then we will have the knowledge and the confidence to lead others. And even if we don't have the title that is so often associated with the leadership, you still can be the leader. That's according to our next guest, Clay Scroggins, who's a pastor from Atlanta and author of the book, How to Lead When You're Not in Charge. He joins us today to teach us how we can lead ourselves and become great leaders for others. Clay, thank you so much for being with us today. So so excited about it, uh, Matt. Thank you so much for having me. This is you bet. a thrill for me. Thanks. It's pretty cool, I think, um, what you're doing, because... Uh, you're you're coming at this from uh, you're a you're a pastor in Atlanta, but you you I mean because a lot of us are in religious settings and we're um, we go to church and we may not have like the lead role, the leadership role, and even at business or even in our families or at work or at school or whatever. How how do I mean, how do you, first of all, I guess, frame what a leader is? Because yeah. you, you continually say it's not about having the authority necessarily, because sometimes you don't, but you can still be the leader. Yeah, that, that, that's really the first step in all of this to me, is you've got to understand what leadership really is. And I think we all do, I think we all understand it uh, in a conscious way, but it is deep within us to believe that I would say to believe as this, but also to act as though leadership and authority are one and the same. Hmm. Because as kids, we just grow up believing that, you know, the yeah. teacher was in charge and so she's the leader. Our parents were in charge and they're the leader. The bus driver's in charge and he's the leader. The principal's in charge and she's the leader. The coach, the, it goes on and on. And so we grow up just believing, okay, well, the way you become a leader is to get in charge. You got oh, to be in charge of something. That's how you, that's how you lead something. But when you start, when you back out and go to answer your question, what, what is leadership? We all know that there are people that are in charge that are not leading. And there are people that are not in charge that are actually leading. So I think we all know consciously on an intellectual level, that leadership goes beyond authority, that it's something greater than authority. And so obviously the word that's most commonly used is influence, that leadership really is its influence. Yeah. And that's the subtitle of this book that I've written, How to Leave When You're Not in Charge. The subtitle is Leveraging Influence When You Lack Authority. Oh, yeah. And the, the great news about that, to me it's a very hopeful message because if you find yourself in a place today where you're not in charge, good news, it doesn't mean – you aren't a leader, and it doesn't mean that you can't lead, but you actually can lead from whatever position that you're in, that you don't have to wait to be in charge in order to lead. And, I mean, I guess, too, uh, and I can't remember where I've heard this definition, but l- leaders tend to have followers, right? So part of this <laughs> yeah, is yeah, pe- people, leader, if, sure. if no one's following you, um, you may not be doing you may not be doing it right. Yeah. You may not be impacting. Yeah. You might have the corner office. You might you might have the parking spot, but if no one's following you, 
Yeah, I would definitely question whether or not you're leading. Yeah. What What do you notice holds us back from, I mean, it sounds like one thing that could hold us back are just how we view our role as a leader. Yeah. Yeah. Um, what else holds us back from, from be, taking the role of leader? Yeah. One of the, what I do in the book basically is I say, hey, so I, I try to set up this, this idea that leadership really goes beyond authority, that it really is influence. And so uh, I try to build the case for influence-based leadership and not authority-based leadership, which I'm certainly not the first one to do that. But it was just me telling my own story of what I've experienced. And, and then really the, the, it begs the question, well, what am I doing to cultivate influence? Because if it really is all about influence, then am I growing my influence or am I losing my influence? Am I, is my influence eroding? And everyone can answer that question. Everyone can uh, have that conversation. And the book is really about these four behaviors that I'm trying to do in my own life to try to grow my influence. And so to your question of what holds us back, I would say one of the things that holds us back is exactly what you said, that we, we have failed to understand that leadership really is all that influence. So we've never really intentionally put a plan in place to grow our influence. But then the second thing that holds us back, I would say, is there is a negativity that comes when you're not in charge that is just highly dangerous because one of the challenges is we're constantly handed decisions that we didn't make. Hmm. And that's really difficult to steward that well because there's a statement that Patrick Lencioni makes in his book, The Advantage. He says, hey, when, when you give people the opportunity to weigh in, they're more likely to buy in. Think about that. So that's, true. that's such a true statement that when you yeah. give people the opportunity to weigh in, of course, they're going to be more likely to buy in. That's really the way our government works. Our government, we allow people to vote. That's their, that's their weigh in. And then because of that, we have a buy in. You know, we, we were frustrated with England because they were taxing us without giving us representation. They were asking us to buy in and we weren't allowed to weigh in. So, so we created this system that we have. Now, the, the danger, though, I would say, is when you're not in charge – what do you do when you're handed decisions that you didn't get to weigh in on? Yeah. I would imagine, Matt, even in your job, there are things that someone else handed you, decisions that the station manager or that your boss has made that you didn't get to speak into, yet you've got to somehow find, find it within yourself to buy into decisions you didn't get to weigh in on. No, absolutely. And that really, to me, is one of the most challenging things about not being in charge. Well, and especially as corporations are huge and and these institutions get bigger and bigger, uh, I mean, there is a reason why maybe seven, I think the numbers Gallup poll shows 70% of people are disengaged in their workplace. And it, it probably is simply because they are never really asked to weigh in. And even when they are asked to weigh in, their weighing in has very little weight. That's right. That's right. They feel like it, ha- it doesn't actually have any sway. Yeah. So the question for me that I try to answer in this book is, you know, that, you know, you can, you can be frustrated by that and you can go, okay, well, bosses need to do a better job of allowing people to weigh in. And, and that is true. I think as a boss, I need to think through what am I doing to allow people to weigh in. But second, I, I think what's maybe what the, the intent of the book was to say, hey, for those of us that aren't in charge, instead of just becoming a victim and going, well, I'm just frustrated and my boss doesn't do this and my boss doesn't do that, what can I actually do to cultivate, to cultivate influence? And one of the things that you can do is you can find ways to buy in even when you didn't get the chance to weigh in. Mm-hmm. And all of us have done that in our life. 
And all of us, we, we know we can. The question is, will we be willing to do that? Because cultivating influence really does require us to be excited about what we're working on today. Yeah. That's, you know, that's what my boss, my boss wants me excited about what's going on, what I'm doing today. And, and the same thing with the people that work for me. I want people that work for me to be really excited about what they're working on. I don't want them sitting around going, well, well, you didn't ask and you didn't right. ask my opinion. You know, I want them to go, hey, I'm going to choose to believe that the decision that was made was the best decision and I'm going to get all in on it. And so I got to figure out how can I do that? How can I, how can I buy in to decisions that I didn't get to weigh in on? I think, I think that is what ultimately will cultivate more influence for any one of us. And we, it, it does seem too like we, um, we're going to influence one way or another. It's, it, That's it's really, exactly right. right. It's kind of about how we're going to do it. And so if you're handed something you don't have control over, you could just sit back and complain about it, and that will influence everyone one way. But it will also make everyone realize, oh, you're not the leader. That's right. That's right. And so you, you actually least... you won't grow more authority, moral authority. Right. You won't grow. You won't grow much. But you know, frustration. That's exactly right. So the 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 next obstacle I would say is, you know, the the, the person that says, okay, well, so is the answer just to be excited about everything and just to walk around with my head in the clouds going, this is awesome. Have you, Matt, do you have little kids? <laughs> yeah, I do. I do. I have six kids. Have yep. you seen the Lego movie? Yeah. You know that song in the Lego movie, Everything is Awesome? Uh-huh. You know? Yeah. I feel like sometimes when I'm giving this talk to people, I can see it in their eyes. I can see it <laughs> in their face. They're frustrated going, are you telling me that you want me to just walk around going, everything is awesome all the time? And of course, the answer is absolutely not, because that doesn't breed influence alone. You can't just walk around going, okay, well, I'm just going to buy in, even though I didn't get the way in, and everything is awesome, and this is so great, and best ever, and that was amazing. No, we still have to learn how to, the behavior that I try to uh, encourage myself to do and encourage others is to think critically. We still have to have the ability to think critically. We've got to have the ability to make something better to bring value to whatever we're working on today that I can't be a uh, I can't be a rainbow puking unicorn <laughs> that is just walking around going everything is awesome all the time now I do get to choose the attitude I bring and I need to bring a posture of positivity but I also need to bring the skill of critical thinking my boss wants me bringing value to what I'm working on my boss wants me thinking through how can I make better what it is that's in front of me today. And that's a huge, uh, that's a really difficult thing to do, but it is so important if you want to become a person that is invited to the table, that has, in, that has more influence, that has influence that goes beyond your authority. Yeah, because then, then you're, you're becoming additive to the conversation. Your, that's right. your critical thinking, it, and you distinguish between being critical and having critical thinking, critical thinking is taking it to the next level, making That's right. sure it's not a complaint. It's actually an innovation. You're innovating. Yeah, the, the line between thinking critically and being critical is razor thin. Hmm. And most people that have the gift of – most people that are wired analytically – most people that are not that they're they're just naturally good at critical thinking and and it's amazing how i really find that people fall in one or two camps they're either naturally prone to positivity and they're just it's easier for them to choose a good attitude it's easier than for them to bring enthusiasm to work or 
they are gifted at thinking critically. They just naturally see problems. They naturally see ways that things can get better. And if you're wired that way, if you find that you have that temperament or that personality, it is so easy and dangerous to gravitate toward being critical or being cynical or becoming negative because that's the way you're wired. And especially when you're not in charge, because when you're not in charge, it's very easy to feel like a victim because so many decisions are handed to you. So many people are constantly giving you orders, making decisions for you. And so you can easily become the victim. And when, when you're in the victim, when you take a victim mindset and then you also bring that gift of being analytical or thinking critically, when you combine those two together, it just it's very easy to become negative or cynical. And that's dangerous because you will not cultivate influence if you're someone who's highly critical. I mean, those are the kinds of people that it doesn't matter if they have the best idea. We just don't want to be around them. Right. And they, they certainly don't have any influence with us. It's, it's – um, uh, Blaine Lee talked about uh, in his book, The Power Principle, talked about the fact that the real power comes from the follower. And I mean, That's you right. you could, again, you can be given the position, but you have to. People have to trust your heart and your mind, and and be willing to follow you in the end. So. Um, how, so I guess that's how we distinguish too. some authority, I guess, is given, but in the end, the, the most important authority is earned. I would say so. And, you know, the, you know, kind of the ultimate twist of this whole book, which I didn't necessarily go into the project with this in mind, but the more I started writing about this topic, Matt, the more I realized, oh, wow, you know, the, the amazing thing about this is that even let's say you apply all of these principles of leadership and what's going to happen. Well, you're probably going to, as you have already said, you're going to get more authority. You're going to be given more authority. You will be the quickest to be asked to do more. And, and, and so you'll, in a sense, you'll become in charge. Yeah. But the, the amazing thing about this is that hopefully you will have learned how to lead through influence. And even though you have authority, you will not have to use that authority to be able to get people to do what you think they need to do. You can do it through influence because the greatest leaders, the best leaders, the leaders that we want to follow, they don't leverage their authority. They leverage influence even when they're in charge. And so this is such an important thing for anybody listening today who's not in charge and you're hoping one day to be in charge is that what you're doing today is so important because you're not wasting time. You're not forgotten. This isn't meaningless, but this is so important what you're doing today to cultivate influence when you're not in charge so that one day when you get to be in charge, you will have that kind of influence to be able to lead with and to be able to leverage with others because that's the way the greatest leaders lead anyway, even when they're in charge. Absolutely. We're speaking with Clay Scroggins, uh, who's the author of the book, How to Lead When You're Not in Charge, Leveraging Influence When You Lack Authority. Clay is a pastor from Atlanta, from the North Point Community Church, and uh, he works uh, under Andy Stanley, who's the founder of the North Point Community Church. And, And really, I think what you're teaching us here, Clay, is it's um it really needs to be taught i think to our kids our kids need to understand uh and blow up some of these myths about leadership any yeah. any ideas any suggestions for how we can teach our kids uh to be better leaders from the get go yeah i love that you're saying that matt um how how old are your kids i have a 25 year old down to a 12 year old wow so you're you're in the thick of it oh, um, yeah. we've got we just had our fifth kid a couple of months ago is we have uh, nine seven five three, and then we got a little baby. So, oh wow! Yeah, you know, certainly 
I didn't write this book with family in mind, but just like you, it's hard to think about life and not think about family. Right. And the, the more I've done this talk in front of audiences, you know, I, I, almost every time I'll have someone do very similar to what you just do and say, you know what, this actually works as a parent. And this is actually important for me to talk to my kids about as well, because as a parent, you know, it's very easy to leverage authority. It's very easy to say, well, I am the dad and you're going to do what I tell you to do because I said that you're going to do it, which, you know, certainly if your kid's playing in the middle of the street and there's a car coming, uh, that's appropriate. You need right. to do that, you know, but, but as, as I'm sure you know, when you, get, when you have kids at the age that your kids are, there comes a point where your voice, as, if, if your voice is only a voice of authority, you will not have the same sway with your kids that you want, that you want to have influence with your kids, and it's got to go beyond your position. And so I think the question of what can I do to cultivate influence with my kids, I, that's, I know you asked from a child standpoint, but I would say from a parent standpoint, that's such a important question because if I'm having to, if I'm having, you know, when, when your kids are little, when they're at the age that all my kids are, you know, obedience is really something that they've got to learn because it's authority. Right. But when you get into the teenage years, you want them to learn obedience out of trust built really on influence because this person loves me and they care for me and they want what's good for me. But that requires the parent to have cultivated that kind of influence. Absolutely. And as a kid, I think certainly, you know, Every single day, our kids are going into classrooms or going into peer groups or they're on teams where they don't have all of the authority, but they've got to learn just because I'm not the teacher, just because I'm not the coach, just because I'm not in charge doesn't mean that I don't have sway, that I can't have sway, that I, that doesn't mean that I don't have an opportunity today to influence the people around me. So I think there's absolutely application for parents and kids. Well, and also, I guess part of leadership is knowing when to follow and whom to follow. I mean, and so, uh, cause some of this is just not, not everybody deserves to be followed. Um, yeah, I, I would agree. And certainly just because someone has authority doesn't mean that they deserve to be followed. Now, you know, obviously I believe that authority really matters. Yeah. I believe authority, uh, goes beyond just our government institutions, that there's, there's more to authority than just what we see or who we've elected. But, I still think, um, yeah, especially when it's a uh, when it comes to our kids and teaching them how to make decisions based on values and not just based on uh, the influence of others. Because, like you said, not all influences are great influences. No, right. Um, as we wrap up, Clay, uh, what would you say is the one thing if there's if there's one thing we should all focus on when we're in a position and we have a leader that's in charge and leading us. Um, what's the one thing we could do that would just immediately increase our ability to to be a good follower, but also be positioning ourselves to become a leader? Yeah, that's a great question, Matt. I I would say, you know, the the most important thing any one of us could do today is to take charge of my greatest area of responsibility, which ultimately is me that I don't have to be in charge to take charge. I can take charge of what is maybe the most important thing is certainly what I'm most responsible to lead today. And that's me. And so for those of you that are listening, that maybe, maybe you have a boss that is not the best. Maybe you have a boss that you don't like. Maybe you have a boss that 
you feel like isn't doing a great job or you feel like isn't pouring into you, that doesn't mean that you can't be well-led today. That I believe that the greatest sense of responsibility any one of us has is to lead ourselves well. And you can take the ownership of leading yourself well. And the great news about that is you will assure that you are always well-led if you lead yourself well. And so the first thing I would do is to say, hey, Take charge. Take charge of leading you really, really well. You know, even if you feel like you have a bad boss, make it clear, put a stake in the ground and say, hey, I'm going to be well led. And I would say the easiest way to lead yourself well, maybe the most important thing in regard to leading yourself well, is knowing exactly where you are. Most people know where they want to be. Most people don't know exactly where they are. And you can't get to where you want to be until you know exactly where you are right now. Yeah. And so the, the better you can understand what you're good at, what you're not good at, what your blind spots are, the better you'll be able to lead yourself today. Good stuff. Clay, thank you so much. Great insight. Uh, Clay Scroggins, again, um, the author of the book, How to Lead When You're Not in Charge. He's also uh, the lead pastor of North Point Community Church and is working there under Andy Stanley, who's the founder of North Point Community Church. Great, uh, great lessons learned, by the way, in the pews and also um, with the people, right? Uh, being a leader is not just a position anymore. It's, it's much more than that. And we've all got to learn to lead and follow, I think, effectively, uh, no matter what the calling, no matter what the responsibility. We'll continue the journey. Next up, we'll be talking about how to handle sensitive disagreements. This is The Matt Townsend Show. You're listening to us right here on BYU Radio. Kimberly Giles is the president and founder of Clarity Point Coaching. She's a regular guest on our program. And a few months back, Kim joined us uh, to talk about how best to handle disagreements that become emotional. We began the interview by uh, me asking her that when we are arguing in the heat of the moment, how do we get through it? Yeah, we've got to have some tools for right when you're in this argument and you're both starting to state your case and, and basically tell your friend or your family yeah. member they're wrong. Without invalidating them. Yeah, with still showing that you value them as a person. So one of the things I want you to watch for while you're listening to their point of view, and you better be willing to listen to their point of view. Number one, you if you value a person, you've got to give them a place to share who they are, mm. what they feel, what they think, and really listen to them. While you're listening, one of the things that will really help if if you will watch for the good intentions and the good character that's behind this person's opinion. For for example, those who are against gay marriage, m- many, you know, have strong religious beliefs and and in their mind this is this is about obedience to what God has told them to do. Right. And the, and there's beautiful character that's in right. that. That they they want to be that kind of person and I was telling the person who wrote this question to me that your spouse who supports gay marriage they are the most loving soul, and they want to just be able to be good just and fair love and loving person. to everyone. Yeah. Isn't that a beautiful thing about right. their character? It really is. It's coming from a good place. 
Yeah, but we do have a, a negative bias where we tend to look for what's wrong in anybody else's argument before we look for yeah. what's right or good about it. And if you look for the good, it is always there. Yeah. You can see good character and good intentions, at least, behind yeah. this person's viewpoint. So I think you need to look for that. Instead of tearing it down, find where, where, where is their goodness and, and shore that up and even shore it up with them. Yeah. Oh, make I can sure see you that really you love people. And you know, and you I really love this about you that you're you're this faithful way. to your belief system, and you believe God thinks it's wrong. And I appreciate that you're strong that way. So, in doing that, can you see you're really valuing their their character, who mm-hmm. they are? You're you're yeah. valuing them, even though you can't agree with their. And opinion. that'll keep them in the conversation. I'm assuming. Absolutely. Yeah. And then the other thing uh, that's just a rule for me, especially when it comes to your spouse, remember that being nice is more important than being right, Mm -hmm. especially in your marriage. And a lot of us, because we've attached our value to our ideas, we really have a strong need to be right. In order to feel like we're okay and and validate ourselves, we need to crush the other people and prove that we're right and you're wrong. And if that's your mindset in your marriage... Is going to be trouble. Oh, it's going to get ugly. It is really well, and, and I can totally agree and love and, and actually be converted to, I, you know what? I do need to love these people more that, I'm, that I have a difference with. And it does, me loving them doesn't mean I give up my position that God doesn't like it. I don't have to either or the decision, right? I can still I, – I might find right. I might find what you're saying is absolutely right and actually be living against it. Like I could know that I should love them and know that I don't. You know what I mean? I can change right then. And it changes me if I'll let it in. I think the biggest piece is that we need to be open. We need to all be teachable and open to different perspectives and seeing the world from a different angle. It would do nothing but serve us to be open to learn. I think that's what we think, though, is if if this was going to be solved, we would think alike still. But in the end, you may not think alike. Yeah. And we could still— Chances are you're not going to. But I could still be changed. And I could still be more loving and still believe what I believe. And you could be loving and also see that this is a religious belief for you, not just Well, you also need to realize that the more you push your right and their wrong, the more they will dig in and insist to be validated on their opinion. Where if you will validate them and be open and not try so hard to push your opinion, they will actually be more open and you'll have more influence. That's powerful. Absolutely. And we we just have to know that it's not always going to be, you know, the Brady Bunch group hug at the end. But I can still – I mean, it could still be positive and good. Absolutely. And yet we don't always agree. So, Matt, one of the many free things that I give away on my website, on my resources page, is instructions on how to have a mutually validating conversation with your spouse or anyone. And honestly, I think it's the most valuable thing on there. Everybody needs to know how to properly have a mutually validating conversation where both people leave feeling heard and understood, respected, and honored. And you just need to know how to do it. just to have like the guidelines. So they go to Clarity Point Coaching. And where is it on the site? It's on the resources page. And the button's right there on the front page, hit resources. And you'll see how to have a mutually validating conversation. And the bottom line is that you're going to give the other person a chance to share and talk about how they feel first. Mm-hmm. And you're going to listen and validate, honor and respect their opinion. Don't disagree. Yeah. Honestly, don't even agree. Just honor Just their right to have their opinion. Mm-hmm. And then you're going to ask if they would be open to letting you share some of your opinion. And if this is, is someone who in the past 
overruns you, interrupts, won't listen, you may have to specifically yeah. ask, would you be willing to shut up for like yeah. five minutes and let me really explain why I feel the way I feel? Would you be willing to give that to me? And they have to agree. And then make sure when you do speak your opinion that you use I yeah, statements. Yeah, keep it safe for them. Yeah, you yeah. statements. You you're do this. You're so messed you, up. Right. You're wrong. It's cool. Yeah, talk about what you've experienced, how you see the world, and how things make you feel. And if and you're sincere, and if you're sincere and make it safe, I always think that I have to. It's like I call it stethoscoping. They, if they're listening to my heart, I need to make it safe for them to keep listening. If I grab the stethoscope and yell in it. You'll never listen to me again. So while you've got this sensitive little instrument listening to my heart, I'm going to make it safe. I'm going to talk safe. I'm going to use I statements. I'm going to make sure you can keep listening. I might slow down my pace. I might give you a chance to show me you're getting what I'm saying. Slow it down. Be safe. It's hard, though. It's a hard topic. It is. But, but it's valuable, it. and especially we once do we've done this. it. We yeah. can talk about anything and right. still respect and honor the no. other person. That was Kim Giles, again, from Clarity Point Coaching, and uh, all of us. We, we can all improve our ability to to be a little bit more sensitive as we disagree and interact with others and really uh, learn to communicate more effectively what we do mean, what we do feel. That's what makes it you know, healthy life, healthy relationships. We'll continue uh, doing what we can to to educate all of us on how to be the best we can be. This is The Matt Townsend Show. 